This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. What's going on, everyone? And welcome to episode 230 of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Bo Kim from the Bigger Cashflow Podcast. Bo is a real estate investor based in Southern California and holds a sizable portfolio of rental properties in the Midwest. In this episode, Bo will tell us how he was able to grow his rental portfolio so quickly and how he transitioned from purchasing properties with conventional financing to partnering with private money lenders to buy more rental units. If you want to learn how to start using private money and how to build amazing partnerships to quickly scale your rental portfolio, then you need to listen to this episode. If you guys enjoy this podcast, do me a quick favor and support the show by leaving a review on the Apple Podcast app. The more reviews we get, the more the show will grow, which will let us do more cool stuff. And this real estate market is still incredibly hot. So if you're looking for a hard money loan for your fix and flip projects, or if you're looking for a 30-year fixed loan for your rental properties with rates as low as 4%, then you can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Let me know that you're a podcast listener, and I'll give you a discount on our processing fees. And now, on to the show. All right, Bo, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Yeah, so my name is Bo Kim. Uh, I live in Southern California. I work a full-time W-2 job for a software company. My background is actually in accounting. So I worked for the accounting industry, public accounting for many, many years, joined a software startup about two years ago. And during the nights and weekends, I work on my real estate side business. I primarily buy rental properties in out-of-state markets in the Midwest, and I also do some fix and flips. So happy to share my story with your listeners. Awesome. And how long have you been investing in real estate? So this will mark about three and a half years of investing out-of-state. And what got you started? So for me, I think... I was always interested in investing at a young age. Um, my family, we all immigrated from South Korea. We didn't have a lot of money. And my parents really taught me the importance of a hard work ethic, but they didn't really teach me how to invest the money and grow it. So they were more of a saver's mindset. So I learned how to save at a young age and really work hard uh, to accumulate. But I came across the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, um, sometime in college. One of my friends passed it along. I read the book, and at that time, it didn't really resonate with me. But I got married in 2016, and I reread that book. And, you know, I started to connect a lot of the dots, and real estate was one of the options that I wanted to look at. And I bought my first primary residence in 2017. And it had three bedrooms, three bathrooms in Southern California. So I was actually able to rent out one of the rooms for about 750 bucks. And that essentially reduced the cost of my mortgage back to levels that I was paying for my previous apartment. So that was another light bulb moment for me. I was like, okay, I can go ahead and rent out the rooms and build equity, get additional tax benefits. And I didn't really have to do much. You know, once I screened the tenant, uh, it was easy because it was my sister-in-law. Um, every month via ACH, she's paying for the room. 
and it's just extra money in my pocket. So I wanted to do more of that. And I naturally realized that I couldn't be buying multiple houses in Southern California. It was just too expensive. And also the landlord laws was not as favorable as I'm sure you'd know living in the Bay Area. So I naturally started researching and I found bigger pockets and I went down that rabbit hole and I came across investing in turnkey properties in the Midwest. So that's what really got me started. And I was able to invest um, remotely while living in Southern California. That's an awesome story. And I think it's funny because we have very similar backgrounds. Like I started in the corporate world. I was working as an engineer. And then in my nights and weekends, I got into real estate investing. And before I even started investing myself, I actually did house hack. Like I bought this property here in the Bay Area, thinking that originally I was just going to rent it out to some long-term tenants because I was living in SoCal. But then I had an opportunity to move back up to NorCal. But then when I moved up here, I was like, wow, I have this giant house to myself. It feels super lonely. I, I want roommates. And just by having roommates, I was able to drastically reduce the cost of living expenses. And that's you know, one of the biggest um, you know, costs in the Bay Area is how much you have to pay for, for housing. So by being able to like, rent this place out to my friends, not only was I able to like, have a lower cost of living expense, but I was also able to give my friends a discount on their rents. Because normally a place like this would cost them between $1,100 to $1,200 a month. I was renting it for like $600 or $800. Bucks. Um, I mean, again, friends and family discount. And it's funny because you say you got married, but you still did house hacking. I was surprised because, you know, my girlfriend lives with me now and she's not interested in having like roommates unless you know, it's a short term thing. And I was thinking, like, how do you get away with house hacking with his spouse involved? But then it's a sister in law. So, of course, she has no choice. Right. It's family. Yeah. So it, it kind of worked out well for me because I wasn't looking to house hack. It, it just really happened naturally. So we had that extra bedroom. And so my wife was using it one red room as an office, I was using one room as an office. And I'm like, you know, there's nothing else to do with these rooms, we don't have any kids. And then my sister in law who was living by herself said, Hey, I'm looking to move out. Do you guys, you know, want to be roommates? And we're like, sure, you know, uh, my wife and her sister get along super well. And I was like, okay, it's going to reduce our living expenses. And at that time is when I came across Rich Dad Poor Dad one more time. And I really realized the power of even just getting some passive income. It really snowballs because at the beginning, I was like, you know, 700 bucks compared to, you know, the actual output of the mortgage is not that big, but it's going to continue to snowball over the course of a year. It's that extra income that helped us buy our first turnkey property, which brought in another $300. And then it helped us get to turnkey property number two, three, and four really quickly within the span of one year. Awesome. So let's go into that. Like, how did you choose what markets to get into? How did you trust this turnkey provider and why turnkey in the first place? Yeah, so there's definitely a lot of lessons that I've learned in the three and a half years of investing. So now I'm up to 65 rental units in the Midwest, but I'm going to preface this by saying I you know, definitely didn't do my full due diligence on my first property. And that's the only one, you know, knock on wood, where I lost money. So thankfully, after that first one, I haven't lost any money, but I've lost $10,000 on that first property. Um, so to answer your question, how did I find those markets and that trusted turnkey provider? 
I did a lot of research because there's a lot of fear and I'm sure your listeners are the same. If they're just starting out, there's a lot of fear of the unknown. And there's a saying that goes, you don't know what you don't know. So there's also fear in that as well. Well, I realized that the more investors that I talked to who are already doing what I was doing. So, you know, if I look at Sean's Instagram and I see him buying rental properties in the Midwest, I'll pick his brain. And a lot of the fears that I have will be mitigated by learning and increasing my knowledge, right? So that's exactly what I did. I probably messaged about, you know, five to six investors a day, took them out to coffee or dinner, um, either via bigger pockets or Facebook groups. I probably consumed all of the bigger pockets books uh, relatively quickly. And then listening to podcasts, At the time, I was working for a CPA firm and my daily commute was at least an hour, hour and a half, one way. So it gave me a ton of time to listen to all the audiobooks and podcasts. So after I got all of that knowledge, I decided to invest in the Midwest for a couple different reasons. The landlord uh, laws were much more favorable. So it was more geared towards the landlords rather than the tenants. And then also the rent to value ratio, I was able to cash flow because that was my primary objective rather than some of the appreciating markets, uh, the coastal areas such as LA, New York, San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, And then also I was looking for lots of good activity from the vendor side. So this is probably one criteria that is not as often talked about, but I think it's very important because a lot of people might hit those same criteria like the landlord laws are favorable and the rent to value is super good. You know, maybe some people are getting like 2% rent to value ratio, buying it for $50,000 and then renting it for a thousand. But sometimes in those maybe tertiary markets, there's not a lot of vendors. So you might be leaning on one property manager and if they end up you know, no longer working out, or, you know, they have full capacity, then you're pretty much at their mercy as an out of state investor, because you're unable to do the work yourselves. So I found the markets of Indianapolis, Kansas City, as well as Little Rock, uh, to hit all of those criterias. And then at that point, I made a short list of turnkey providers that I wanted to work with, based on the feedback that I saw on bigger pockets. And then I just started making calls. Um, And I interviewed them. I went from a listing of about 30. I trimmed them down to about five immediately. It's interesting what you find out as soon as you hop on a call with them, you can tell if they're investor friendly or, you know, maybe they just have so much business, they don't want to take the time to train a new investor. I just knew that I still had my training wheels on and I'm going to need to be kind of supported. So if I felt like they were not able to take on a newer investor, then I worked with somebody else. So I think you're probably the first guest I've had who's purchased like a turnkey property. What was that experience like? Yeah, so (laughs) it was very interesting because I always thought that you had to buy a property and then do the renovations yourselves. I didn't know that there was a third party vendor who was going to do all of that for you and just literally give you a rent ready property where you just have to turn the key. So in theory, that sounded fantastic. I knew uh, quickly, I found out that the execution part was the most important, meaning making sure that a turnkey provider did the rehab correctly. There were a lot of people that I came across that were doing what they call in the industry lipstick on a pig. 
So cosmetically, it looks okay. You put a fresh coat of paint on, but then you still have the underlying issues, right? You can only mask foundational issues or, you know, drywall issues for so long with a coat of paint. So when I was interviewing these turnkey providers, I wanted to make sure that they have a good track record. They're not just a fly by night because Bo Kim, I can say that I'm a turnkey provider uh, because I fix and flip homes now where I don't do the management, but I, I sell you rent ready properties to investors. However, I may have just only been doing this for six months, right? I don't have that track record. So that was really important to me, the ability to talk to referrals, other investors, and then also just getting other third parties who are not involved in that business to verify some of that information for me. So those people were either going to be third party uh, property management, if it wasn't going to be in-house, it was going to be a third party inspector and also a lender because a lender, although they make money by assigning you loans, they also have a vested interest to make sure that they're not lending on a, a defunct product, right? So they're going to get in uh, appraisals and they're also going to underwrite to make sure that, hey, is this guy really going to cash flow like he says he's going to do, right? So those are some various ways that I was mitigating a lot of the risk by working and building a new relationship with a turnkey provider. And uh, how many turnkey properties did you end up buying during that phase? So I ended up buying four turnkey properties in the first year. So I bought the first turnkey property that I bought was in Kansas City. This was the one that I lost $10,000 on, and I can get more into the details if you like. Um, but before I even started seeing the troubles with my first one, I was so excited about this new venture that I was on, and I got my wife involved. We we're all excited. We ended up buying number two and three in Indianapolis in about three months after we closed on the first one. And then we bought property number four in Little Rock uh, within about seven months of buying the first one. So it all kind of happened around the same time. And these are from different vendors, right? Or are they all from the same turnkey provider? No. Yeah, the, good question. So they are all different vendors. So the Indianapolis, the two from Indy are the same vendor, but the different states, they're all different turnkey providers. And then how are you buying these properties? Is it all cash or you can get funding for them? Yeah, so my wife and I, uh, we work W2 jobs, but we both graduated from college with no debt. Thankfully, we, we all worked throughout college and we went to community college and then we transferred and we were, we were pretty heavy savers. So before we started investing in rental properties, in hindsight, it kind of worked out, but we also weren't very smart because we just put it in a savings account earning like little to no interest for a couple years. Um, so we had a lot of money saved up. And even after we got married, um, we were saving at probably about 40 to 50% of our income because we really tried to live off of one person's income and then just try to save as much as possible of the other person's income. So we were able to buy the first four turnkeys with just the savings that we had. And then you were getting a loan, right? Like 80% loan from commercial financing? Yep. So we were doing the 20% down uh, for single family and then 25% for duplexes. Okay, got it. So the two units in Indianapolis was a, was a duplex? 
Yeah. So the no, there was one property that was a duplex, and there was also a single family in Indianapolis. Okay, got it. Yeah. Um. So, well, how do you finance more deals after that? You already have four. Aren't you tapped out? Yep, that's exactly what happened, Sean. So you know, we bought four properties, and I just really bit the real estate bug, and. We were taking all of that income, and because the the one good thing about turnkey properties, with the exception of that first one where I lost money, the other three were really high performers. So I was probably、um, netting after all expenses and eight to ten percent vacancy and maintenance reserves each. I was still netting about two hundred dollars. So it was about six to eight hundred dollars in extra passive net income that I was getting. That really snowballed our savings even more. However, that still wasn't enough. You know, if we're paying about twenty thousand dollars roughly on these hundred thousand dollar homes to buy turnkey, it wasn't enough to, you know, buy it at the rate that I really wanted to. And around that time, I came across the concept of the Burr strategy.、Um, in case your listeners might not be familiar, which is buy. Rehab, rent, refinance, and repeat is basically just recycling that same capital. So we came across that strategy, and I really hit it off with my turnkey provider in Indianapolis. And it was a husband and wife, and they wanted to scale up with me, and they were willing to help me find distressed property because they were a full brokerage as well. So they had a team of agents, they had contractors that they were working with, and they were also an in-house. Property manager, so it was a one-stop shop. I was really fortunate to find, and they were like, "Hey, Bo, we know you're tapped out. You you did all these twenty percent on the two turnkeys that you bought with us. If you want to continue to scale, we can go ahead and find wholesale deals. You'll still have to find a way to finance them, whether it be through hard money lenders such as yourselves or private lenders.、Uh, you're going to go ahead and do the rehab." But basically, you get to keep the equity that a turnkey provider would have kept as profit、um, in your pocket and recycle that capital. So what I did was, by that time, I bought four, and I really built genuine relationships with other investors. So there was a community of us where, hey, we all just started around the same time. We've buying, we're buying these turnkey properties, and we're just helping each other out. And I just told the group, "Hey, I think I'm going to do my first burr." And everybody was all excited because they're also doing just their turnkey provider, or just have that having that camaraderie. And I was like, "Hey, it's a thirty thousand dollar purchase. I'm going to put about fifteen thousand dollars into it. So all in at roughly forty five, maybe fifty, with closing costs and holding costs.、Uh, it's going to be worth roughly about seventy five thousand dollars and rent for eight twenty five. So it's still going to cash flow afterwards." Anybody interested in financing this? And one of the gentlemen was like, "Hey, I don't want to buy any properties right now, but I'd like to see my money grow." So with that relationship, I got my first private lender, and I didn't even know what I was doing. I didn't even know the concept of private lending. It's just as a real estate investor, what I love about it is you're a problem solver, and you run into a roadblock, and you just think about, okay, how can I solve this problem? And you just figure out things one by one. What kind of interest rates were you giving your private lender? Yeah, it was a ten percent interest rate,、um, and it was secured by the rental property.、Uh, and I had a mortgage and a promissory note. There were no points, and there were no additional fees. And did he give、uh, you the whole forty-five thousand, or like what did he give you for that loan? 
so he paid for the whole purchase, 30,000, and I paid for the 15,000 rehab. Okay, got it. And then in a few months, did you have to like refinance out and then pay him back? Yeah, so um, I was, I was told that I had to wait six months to get my money back out. But I came I was just talking to my lender. And he and I have built a relationship after doing four deals together. I was like, Hey, so is there any way I can get my money out quicker? And he told me of the conventional delayed refinance strategy. So I was actually able to, as soon as we finished renovations and got a tenant in there, I was able to get my money back out by taking the lesser of um, the the purchase price um, or 75% of the value. So I had to leave some of my money still in there, but I didn't want to wait six months because I had another deal that was coming out. So if I recall correctly, I, I believe I got about $33,000 out because I was able to roll in the closing costs. And then I paid out my lender and then I had money in there. And then I went for my next deal. Got it. So you left your like $15,000 for the rehab in the deal, even though the property's worth like 75,000 because of this whole like seasoning period stuff, right? Lenders won't give you your full like appraised value. Um, and it's a huge roadblock, right? It's a huge roadblock for any investor who wants to do the burst strategy. And I think, you know, this is the bigger podcast or yeah, they listen to bigger pockets and they hear that, oh, you can just buy a property, burr it and get your money back out ASAP. But it's not that simple. Actually, I made a YouTube video about it that is going to post in about two weeks uh, about the whole seasoning period thing. Now, I think getting private loans is really cool. From what I remember though, you said you were tapped out of your conventional financing at four. How were you able to get more conventional loans afterwards? Yeah, so to clarify, when I, when I say tap out, um, I, I still had the ability to get more conventional loans. So the Fannie Mae um, guidelines allow you to get up to 10 in your name. So my strategy was I'm going to get as many loans as I can under my name and then also get as many as we can under my wife's name. So technically, we can have about, what is that, 19 because our primary residence is under both of our names. Hmm. Um, but when I was saying tapped out is just in terms of looking ahead into the future, just continuing to put $20,000 down payment. Um, I knew that I was going to run out of money quickly. So I wanted to start building equity. All right. That makes a lot of sense. Now your turnkey provider in Indianapolis, they're like super cool. Like they're willing to basically bring you into their business and give you equity. Why would they do that? Like what's the upside for them? Yeah, so um, I, th I think it was a couple different things. Uh, number one, just the relationship that I built with them. And it was one of those, they're, they're still going to make money. So I like to really think of, you know, what's in it for them. So they are going to help me source the deal. Sometimes they are the wholesalers. So I've done probably like three dozen deals with them uh, within the past three and a half years. So when they're the wholesaler, um, they, they make a cut on the acquisition. When they do the rehab, um, they either take a markup or sometimes I just give them, if they're project managing only, uh, I give them, depending on the size of the project, I might give them 10% or $5,000, the lesser of. And then also when the job is finished, they are going to manage my property. So I give them 8 to 10% of the property management fee 
and they also get the first month's uh, leasing commissions. And then if I ever decide to sell it, I'm going to use them as my seller's agent because they're a full-on brokerage. So they probably have about four different ways that they're going to make money with me. And I think the biggest part was the way that I laid it out for them is like, hey, I know you guys are busy. And because they're a full brokerage, they also like to do their own fix and flips. So they were hesitant in the beginning to do my renovations because they didn't want it to, they had a very well-oiled machine. So I told them, hey, I know you guys are going to do fix and flips, but it's not going to be 24-7 for the whole 12 months out of the year. Maybe you're doing three projects in the spring, and then in the before you get to summer, there might be like three weeks of downtime. And you want to make sure your contractors are continuing to work, because if they don't have work, they're going to go to another investor and do rehabs for them. And they understood this, and I understood this. So I told them, hey, when that time comes, I'll be patient. I'll buy a property in February, and if I have to wait until mid-March for you to start on my rehab, I'm okay with that. I just want to work with somebody I can fully trust and that I know the quality is there. And they were appreciative of that, and they decided to um, use that contractor's downtime to work on my projects. And then after I did a dozen deal with them, they're like, okay, this guy's serious about building his portfolio. And I quickly became their most important client because they have about 230 doors under management. And my portfolio with them is about 34 properties. So um, I represent a big chunk of their portfolio now. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, you're basically coming in with like win-win situations. And uh, I guess most importantly, now they're able to do what they were doing before, but with no risk. Like, I mean, if your project goes sour or, you know, things change, you're the one holding the bag, not them. They already made their cut through their wholesale fees and they're making money from the construction fees. Yep, yeah. exactly. And they're keeping their agents busy, uh, which was another thing, right? Because they, their agents work on commissions and sometimes they had two, three um, that were looking for new clients. And sometimes I would be that client for them. Awesome. So, you know, you said you have like 60 plus doors now. That seems like a really fast pace. And, and to clarify, this isn't like, like a syndication where you put in some money and you claim you have a thousand doors. This is your own portfolio, right? Yeah, yeah. Just want to be absolutely transparent. So out of the 65, uh, 30 of them, my wife and I, we own 100%. Uh, the other 35, we have a 50-50 partner. So later on, um, about one and a half years into my real estate business and I wanted to continue to scale, I realized that I was really good at finding deals and putting deals together, running numbers and managing the operation side. Um, but I had to constantly raise private capital. So I just met, ended up meeting a guy at church um, who I knew for a couple years. And he mentioned that he wanted to get in real estate and I knew he had a successful business. So he had the capital, but he didn't have the knowledge or the time. So after some discussions, we decided to partner up where he just fronts all the money. I ran all the operations and we split everything 50-50. So yeah, out of that 65, a good chunk is also with that partner of mine. I see. It's funny. I've actually gotten phone calls from some friends who are really big in the tech space. They have a lot of money, uh, but similar to you, like these people don't really understand real estate investing and they know that I do it full time, but I'm like really hesitant on taking their money. Just because I know like if something goes wrong, it's like 
really bad and it might ruin our friendship. How do you kind of get across that mental barrier of, you know, partnering with someone like with, with a flip, you're in and out within a few months and then, you know, your partnership dissolved, everyone's this profits, everyone's happy with a rental property. You're going to hold on to this thing for like 30 plus years and people's goals and stuff might change in those times, right? Like he might want to sell and you don't want to sell. What, what do you do at that, at that point? So like, I guess, what were your thoughts going into this like long-term partnership? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And there's multiple elements to this. I definitely would like to say equity partnerships are not for everybody. So there's two types of partnerships, right? There's the debt partnership and the equity. A debt partnership is like a private lender. So they don't have direct ties to the actual property. Uh, in terms of if the project fails, the debt partner still needs to get paid, right? So whether you do a personal guarantee or whatnot, they're still going to get their principal and interest back and they could file liens against your wages, garnish your wages, things like that. In terms of an equity partnership, whether in the upside or the downside, they're attached at the hip and you guys are on the same boat. So there's definitely pros and cons. So number one is I would say make sure 100% that the person that you're working with um, set expectations with them. All investments have some sort of risk. You could lose it all essentially. Um, and what are they looking to get out of this? Are they going to be in, a, in the short term? Then like you said, Sean, maybe a flip partnership makes a lot more sense than a rental partnership because I told um, my business partner, hey, I'm looking to hold on to these and I want to pass these on to my kids. I don't need to eat off of my cash flow. I have a good paying W2 and all of this is going to go back into the business and I'm going to increase the number of doors or you know either pay down the loans to increase the cash flow over time, uh, deleverage, and I'm going to just hold on to them. Are, are you with me on this plan? And he was in the same boat. He didn't need the money, but he wanted to uh, create this portfolio. So I knew that checked the box because the worst thing that could happen is you buy something together and you realize maybe this, you know, business partner is not financially savvy or, um, is in a business where they might need a mo the money, like two quarters from now, they're like, Hey, can we get that distribution? And it's going to just eat away at the growth of the company. Right? So you want to make sure those al alignments, uh, expectations are aligned. And then also um, just the risk you mentioned, losing your money is one thing, but losing somebody else's money, I personally also wouldn't be able to sleep at night. So I really had that honest conversation with myself and with my wife. I was like, hey, we're entering this partnership. I'm going to be personally guaranteeing all of this because if I lose somebody else's money, I, I can't live with that. So the the way that I got over that mental hump was just, having the confidence in what I'm doing and also just it allowed me to be even more disciplined. Um, what I mean by that is when I'm growing my personal portfolio, you have these set criterias, right? Like let's just say it's a 1.2 rent to value ratio. So if it's a hundred thousand dollar home, it needs to rent for a, a $1,200. And I want, let's just say 14% cash on cash is, is just a, a metric that I'm going to use when analyzing rental properties. Well, when you're doing it by yourself, it was for like that for me, sometimes you get emotionally attached. I really like this property. I like this area. So instead of 14%, I'm okay with 11, 12% cash on cash, right? I've done that uh, when I'm solo investing. Well, when it comes to partnership, I knew that that couldn't fly because that was a very slippery slope. 
And if you don't stick to the plan, you could end up buying properties and you technically grow the portfolio, but you're going to be bag holding a lot of these things where in the long run, it's not good for your portfolio. So I had to be extra disciplined, which required a lot more effort on my end. Uh, but those things really helped me get over the mental barrier. Like I knew I was buying properties for like 40 cents on the dollar through relationships that I had with the wholesaler, getting good prices on rehabs because I've worked with the same GC for many, many deals. And then working with the same lenders, I was getting the best interest rates, um, best terms. So all of those, I knew that if I had to just sell it and cut my losses, um, I would at least still break even or make a small profit compared to making, you know, the equity that I want on a burst strategy. Yeah, no, I'm, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. You basically, you have set up all these systems already. So you're confident in bringing in another person and it's not like you're just brand new and trying to figure things out as you go. And I guess it also helps that this partner here is pretty well off. So hopefully the money that he has given and trusted with you isn't something that he needs ASAP. And if he loses it, you know, it'll ruin him. <laughs> that's like the worst case scenario, right? You always want to make sure you invest only up to what you can comfortably lose, right? You never know what's going to happen. Yep, 100%. So let me just do a quick breakdown of your entire business structure so I understand what's going on here. So in the beginning, you were just interested in buying some properties. You bought some turnkey properties. But then from there, you've made some good networks and then you decided to partner with your turnkey provider over in Indianapolis who basically has this one-stop shop for everything. And by just doing multiple deals with them, they're now your like main source of deals. They're like your wholesaler and they're also your contractor and your property manager. So it's, it's great to have that connection. Uh, then meanwhile, you, you were running out of cash from your own like savings and whatnot. So then you had to partner with other people. In the beginning, it was through like private money lending from people in your network. But then I guess it was annoying to just have to go back, back and forth for like more of these 10% loans. So eventually you just found like a partner who has very similar goals to you, who has a net worth to pretty much fund your deals. And then you've just been buying properties like that. Boom, boom, boom. Whenever you have a good one, you're just asking for money and then you split it 50-50. Like, let me ask you a question then. Why, now that he's done this with you, like for 30 plus deals, why is he still working with you? He's giving up half of the potential profits. He could just do it himself and make double the amount. Yeah. So I think that actually goes both ways. Um, you know, I was just looking at the amount of money that we made in terms of equity. And then we also started doing fix and flips together. And on average, I think we net about thirty dollars to $50,000 per flip that we do. And we've done five this year. So, you know, I've obviously made him a ton of money. And when I ran the numbers, if I just used a hard money lender such as yourself, I would have kept at least another 30% profits just for myself, not by splitting it 50-50, but keeping it myself. The cost of capital is expensive, so it would have eaten up another 20% of those profits when I ran my numbers. So all that to say, it does cut both ways, meaning if I didn't have him, I could keep more of the pie. Same thing, if he did it himself, he can keep more of the pie. But I feel like that's where equity partnerships are really powerful is that we are bringing complementary skill sets. Like if I were to partner up with another Bo who does the same thing that I have, the operational knowledge, but the financing we had to split 50-50, it doesn't really make a lot of sense because our skill sets uh, probably overlap and the things that we do are, might not be able to be divided 50-50, right? The, the way that we contribute to the business. 
But um, on the flip side, I think of it like, uh, I think somebody said this, would you like a whole grape or would you like a, a quarter of a watermelon, right? So the, the abundance mindset that I had was like, okay, I'm going to be giving him some of the profits w- without me just keeping all of it using a hard money or private lender. But I don't need to worry about financing anymore because I know he's going to continue to fund the deal. And instead of me having this whole grape by myself, now I can have a big chunk of a watermelon, like half a watermelon. Yeah, that's a good mindset, good analogy. So going back to your first deal, you said that you lost $10,000. Yeah. What happened there? Oh, man. Yeah. So that was, I learned so much just about business, real estate, even people. Um, just I'm, I'm a very trusting person. Um, I, I try anything once. I take them at their word for it. And some, in hindsight, some of that definitely was my fault in terms of not doing the right due diligence. So I actually shouldn't say some of it, all of it is my fault. Um, so you as the business owner, as a real estate investor are 100% responsible uh, for the outcome of your business. So you really can't blame anybody. Um, what happened was the purchase process of the turnkey property went pretty smoothly. Like, I, heck, I even feel like I got a really good deal. So this was a property that was on the market uh, on the turnkey providers list at $70,000. I was just eyeballing it for about four months. And I really wanted it I don't know if it's just me learning from my dad, always asking for a discount and good pricing. I was trying to haggle pricing with them and I was offering like $60,000, like $10,000 off. And they're like, no, that's absurd. But we'll give it to you for 68, right? $2,000 off. And I went back and forth literally for months. It sounds silly now because I don't do that anymore. I just, you know, just really pay the price if I feel like there's enough value. But I ended up getting it for $66,000, $4,000 off. And I was like, heck, this is awesome. It appraised for seventy two. So from day one, I, I was technically coming out with $6,000 in equity. And then the turnkey provider, they did all new cosmetics, new HVAC, new roof, um, all new flooring, new kitchen, new bathrooms, uh, new windows. So a lot of the long-term maintenance issue was kind of taken off the table. Uh, because it was newly renovated. Um, There were certain things from the property management side that I didn't do proper due diligence on. So it was the same company. It was a different branding, but it was the same owner. And they had grown from 200 doors to 600 doors within the span of about three to four years. So exponential growth, uh, which is red flag number one for real estate investors, you guys should know. And then red flag number two, this is me speaking with a lot of industry experts, is that roughly for property management, there should be one staff member for roughly about 100 doors. Now, depending on your systems and processes and obviously experience of those staff personnel, maybe they can handle 150 doors, maybe even 200 doors. But... I knew that they had about 600 going on to 700 doors and they had about four staff at the time. And some of them were also very new to the industry. So what happened was 
the first 90 days where there's a turnkey guarantee, like any maintenance orders they cover under their turnkey warranty program. And if there's any tenant issue, they pay, they guarantee the rent. So that was also another red flag in hindsight. So first 90 days, no issues. I'm getting my rent checks like clockwork. It rented out for $8.50 a month. So I was making really good cash flow. But another red flag was my property manager that I flew over there before closing. I thought I was doing the right thing, due diligence. I, you know, I bought everybody Starbucks. I was like super excited to buy, buy my first turnkey property. I checked out the property myself before they put a tenant in it. Um, I checked the rehab. It looked good. And then that property manager that I talked to on my flight over there before I closed, they already left the company by the time I closed. And then in month three, that second person left the company as well. So I'm already on my third property manager by month three. And then I stopped getting my rent checks. So you get this notification. We're using a property management software saying the tenant has not paid rent, second notification. And your heart just drops because you're a new investor. You don't know what the heck's going on. And then I call that third property manager and they're like, hey, yeah, they stopped paying rent. You're no longer covered or under the guarantee. So this month you're going to be out and it's $850. But hey, I still have the bills to pay. I still have to pay my mortgages, PITI, all of that. So I was like, that's a bummer. Let's try to get this figured out. But the new property manager was reassuring, telling me, hey, just go ahead and let's wait and let's not file an eviction just yet. I think it's too premature. And then another month that goes by, they still can't pay and they give a, an excuse. They're like, hey, I just got fired from my job, whatnot. I'm, I found another job. I'll, I'll pay everything pretty soon. So I, I wait another month. So that was another mistake that I made. I should have just filed an eviction after a full month of non-payment, at least get that process started. Two months goes by. I still don't have, at this time, the property manager I've been talking to leaves again. I'm on my fourth property manager. So the fourth property manager comes in. She's super experienced. She has like 10 plus years of experience. She sees the situation. It's like, why didn't you file an eviction? I was like, you guys told me not to. And she's like, no, let's get this process started right away. So we start that process. And it's at that point where the tenant knows that, okay, I'm serious. So they may have been like a professional tenant, tried to squeeze money out of me. Um, and they, they didn't want to get evicted. So they paid a couple hundred dollars and I accepted it. And that was another mistake. If you in Kansas City, if you accept even a, a portion of the rent, the eviction process gets suspended. So I got like 200 bucks, but I'm technically out about 2200 bucks because they hadn't paid for three months. And now the eviction is extended. So I learned my lesson. I, I told them I'm not going to accept any more partial payments, go through the eviction process. Now we're about four months in, and I finally got the judgment to get them out of the property. So I'm out about $3,000 of the 10000 that I lost. The, the tenant is pissed. Uh, but again, it goes back to the rule of these are landlord-friendly states. So the sheriff escorted them out. Once I got the judgment, we scheduled the sheriff escort in about two weeks. I was able to get them out of the house and they had to move all of their stuff out. And unfortunately, I don't like kicking people out of their homes. If they're good tenant, uh, good tenants, they're paying tenants. I don't want to do that to a family, but you know, they were taking advantage of me. It's been three, four months of non-payment. 
So we escorted them out. They were upset. Uh, upset. They did a lot of damage to the house. Roughly about 3,500 was the quote for the rent ready. And then I had eviction costs, lawyer fees. And then here's the kicker. The husband came back and they kicked the door down and they stole all my appliances. They were really upset. Um, so that's the total damage was roughly about $10,000. And then also to put in the new tenant, I had to pay first month's rent. So even more than that. So yeah, that was a long story, but that's how I lost my money. But hopefully there were really tangible um, lessons learned for the listeners who are looking to buy their first property. I thought I did my due diligence. And those are things that the bigger pockets books tells you to do, like get an inspection, fly over to the markets, uh, take a look for yourself and making sure the quality of the rehab and turnkey is all good. But there's other things about making key decisions. Don't accept partial payment for evictions. Treat it like a business. Don't get emotional. Like I gave them a pass for the first two months, but I should have just filed an eviction right away because the writing was on the wall that they were not going to be able to pay. So super powerful story. Thanks for sharing that. Now we're running close on our time here. So I want to give some time to you know, talk about your podcast. Do you want to talk about your podcast, like why you started it and you know, what have you learned from it? Yeah, so I started my podcast about two years ago. So I think I reached about roughly about 20 some properties. And I really enjoyed listening to podcasts such as yours, um, just learning from other investors. And I just wanted to share my story. And the reason there was a couple of reasons why I started it. Number one, I wanted to leave this almost as breadcrumbs for my future kids. Um, I don't have any kids right now, but uh, my wife and I want to start a family. And I, I know I don't want to leave a lot of money for my kids. That's not what I want to do. But I really want to give them a strong work ethic like my parents instilled in me. Um, the drive to succeed, a, a lot of knowledge I wanted to leave for them. And I was like, what better way to just document my journey, starting from scratch of like how I got started, the way that I view money, the way that I view other things as well, not just with real estate investing, just life in general, just philosophical discussions. Um, so that was my primary reason for starting this podcast. And then number two was I also kind of wanted to represent, be a representative of the community that I was part of, like being a Korean American immigrant. When I go to these RIA meetings and I just see a lot of successful real estate investors, and this may just be due to myself living in a bubble. There might be a ton more that I don't know about. But at the time when I listened to podcasts and go to RIA meetings, they, I didn't see a lot of familiar faces that I resonated with. Um, and they were maybe either people that have been in America for generations. So when I talk to them about financing and raising private capital, maybe they have a lot of friends and family, they can easily raise private capital, things like that. But for me, I had my own sets of challenges, because the people around me don't have a lot of money. So I just wanted to share my story and some of the roadblocks and how I've overcome those hurdles to grow my business and my portfolio. Um, so that's what really drives me to continue on with the podcast, because as I'm sure you know, Sean, this is a grind. Um, you know, we don't do it for the money. Uh, and, you know, we're just doing this to share our knowledge and give back to the community. So yeah, honestly, I, I, I did this podcast for a free consultation. You know, like <laughs> I get to talk to experts like yourself and figure out how you guys are doing the business. Like I can think about what I'm doing wrong and how I can adjust. And of course, the benefit is not to share this with the world as well. 
And they can also listen to this and think, okay, here's some cool techniques. Let me try them and see if they work. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, but what is your podcast called and where can people find out more about you? Yeah. Thanks, Sean. My podcast is called Bigger Cash Flow. So like the name says, I'm really focused on the cash flow elements, um, the fire movement, increasing your uh, passive income to exceed your expenses uh, so that you can live on your own terms. You don't have to you know, work a W-2 if you don't want to anymore. I mean, if you want to work a W-2, you can certainly do so. Um, so that is the premise of my podcast. Um, you can find it anywhere uh, such as iTunes, Spotify, um, Google Podcasts. And I have a website called thebiggercashflow.com where I post blog articles, post my podcast episodes. You can also check out some free resources. I created a seven-step guide, basically from soup to nuts. If you have no knowledge, I spent, I don't know, at least 20, 30 hours just documenting and curating like an agenda um, the steps that I took to find a market, analyze deals, how to understand cash flow numbers. Uh, it's a seven step process. So you can just check it out in audio format. Awesome. So, but before we end our show today, what's next for you? It seems like with 60 plus units, you should be good to go already and leave your job if you wanted to, but here you are still working. Yeah. So I, I really love my W2. I, I think I'm one of the rare ones. Um, just working for the software company. It's so exciting. It's very dynamic and it's it's just growing every year. So I don't plan on love, uh, leaving the W-2 anytime soon. I just love my job. Um, but I do want to be prepared, right? So if I have kids and maybe I want to just go part-time and just spend more time with the, the kids, that's what really motivates me. The why is really important. And, you know, I, I just want to be that, dad who can go to the kids sports games and things like that so uh, continue to build my real estate portfolio um, I've been buying more multifamily recently so I bought a 10 unit and a 16 unit so I'll probably buy more small multifamily and scale up that way um, and then I, I also if I had more free time I want to produce more content like I want to write a book like an ebook um, as well as I know you have a great course out there I'd love to create something like that to just share back uh, and give back to uh, the people so that they can learn more about uh, real estate investing and some of the journey that I've been through. So yeah, that's next on the horizon. Awesome. Well, both thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story with us. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.